You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash rvpod to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on-demand platform you can watch anywhere. Our members get daily videos and analysis, plus access to more than 3,000 videos for beginners and experienced investors alike, and live events online. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code PODCAST10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Wednesday, June 8, 2022. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by Darius Dale, founder and CEO of 42 Macro. Let's take a look at the closing prices on U.S. equities uh, here as we have this conversation around 4 o'clock, closing out the day. It's a down one. S&P 500 off uh, about 45 points, 1%, 1 1.08%, 4,500 excuse me, 4,115 on the close. NASDAQ uh, also down on the day, off about three quarters of 1%, closing the day out at 12,086. Dow Jones Industrial Average following suit down uh, eight-tenths of 1%, closing out the day here at 32,910. European equity markets closed fractionally lower on the day ahead of tomorrow's ECB rate decision. Talking of international markets, before we jump in with Darius, we're going to pause for an update on global markets by Real Vision's own Weston Nakamura, who joins us live from Tokyo. Weston, welcome back. Hello, gentlemen. How are you? How are we? We're doing great, man. Not like dollar yen. Let's talk <laughs> about it. It's ugly. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, if you're along the dollar side, you're, it's, not, it's not so ugly. It's quite, quite, uh, quite doing well. But we've broken into the 134 handle on dollar yen. Um, so now the yen is just get, continuing to get crushed um, after hey, listen, a very- For folks who don't follow uh, this currency pair, give us a sense of what 134 means and why it's so significant. Yeah, so I mean, uh, 133.80 was the resistance that was broken that then, you know, uh, continued into the 134 handle. 133.80 was, um, you know, a previous high. We're, right now, we're looking at the next level being 135.18. This is a 2002 high. Uh, that's just a few ticks away. Yeah. If that's broken, we're at a new millennium high, um, right. 1998, I believe. Um, so we're at the weakest levels, um, and and not just the the level itself, but like Darian and I, and I have, have talked about on on the before. Um, it's not so much the level, it's the pace uh, in which, the, you know, it gets to this level. Um, it's the, the, the volatility, the, you know, the, the velocity of the move uh, in and of itself right. uh, that is of concern. Yeah, um, if you're looking at that chart, you can see the just extreme steepness uh, on that curve. Uh, by the way, for people who are relatively new to currency markets, we should say uh, dollar yen, this shows dollar strength, uh, Japanese yen weakness. Uh, so when you see that chart moving up and to the right dramatically, it's the dollar strengthening, the when, the yen plunging. Yeah, this is chart one um, 
I don't, yeah, if you're looking at that right now, but uh, what I always go to is my go-to is looking at dollar yen spot and the U.S. ten-year yield. Um, they move in tandem, and so that's why you should care about what dollar yen is uh, is doing because it moves along with the risk-free rate. And I don't care what you invest in; you need to know what the risk-free rate is doing. Uh, however, as of late with this breakout, you're starting to see dollar yen really, you know, push through to these, you know, these at least certainly year-to-day highs, whereas uh, the ten-year yield um, is not. So Wes, there is a bit talk of a to us about the directionality of that correlation because it's an extraordinary chart when you show ten-year yield against dollar yen. Sure. Uh, if you look at chart two, okay, um, what that is is these are weekly uh, flow data from the Ministry of Finance in Japan um, that shows basically foreign um, bond bo- net foreign bond uh, buying or selling uh, by Japanese investors. And as you can see throughout the bulk of this, you know, March, um, you know, surge in Treasury yields uh, that coincided with a massive, massive uh, unloading of foreign bonds. This is not just U.S. Treasuries, but a lot of it is um, from from Japan. Then you see these two weeks in which you actually see some, um, you know, a bit of a sort of meaningful inflow of net buying. That was when Treasury yields came down recently. And then last week we saw continued selling again. This is one week delayed data, um, but you can really see that there is a material impact from these flows that are coming from Japan, particularly uh, Japan lifers, uh, life insurance companies um, who are these, you know, these massive capital allocators. They a lot of them recently came out with their investment, uh, you know, fiscal year 22 investment, you know, um, planning, if you will. And uh, it's interesting just to see. I mean, these are always subject to change. Not that they're not always followed, but. Uh, the ranges for like, you know, what, what, what they're trying to do and all that is like, so their upper range, the, the highest estimate or uh, highest uh, outlook for dollar yen by year end is 140 uh, for these lifers. 10 uh, year JGB is 25 basis points where the cap is. One of them was actually above that. So one of them believes that it's not going to hold that. And then the, uh, the highest for the 10 year U.S. Treasury yield um, was forecast was somewhere around 3.4%. So 3.4% with a 25 basis point JGB pinned $140 uh, yen is basically what that means. So 140 is really not that like doomsday out of the question. They're in the, the model forecasts for, for these major um, you know, allocators. Wesson, we really appreciate you joining us from the middle of the night from Tokyo. Just to double click on it one more time, the significance of this to global markets. Yeah, chart three is basically just the first two of uh, the first two charts just combined, and you can just clearly see. I'm gonna put this up on Twitter as well, but you need to, you really need to watch dollar yen because you really need to watch what um you know uh, to get some sort of price signal uh, as to what Japanese investors are or are not doing. Uh, it gets more complicated with like you know currency hedge and all that kind of thing, but by and large, just you need to keep an eye on this. Um, and also because simply because, you know, U.S. Treasuries, this is the risk free rate we're talking about. And right. so if you have something that is as closely correlated to uh, the 10 year U.S. Treasury yield uh, dollar yen, then you certainly need to look at that, you know, that asset class as well. Yeah. And by the way, for people who are interested in more, they can follow you at Across the Spread on Twitter. where they will see many more of these charts and more of this analysis. Indeed. Wesson Nakamura, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Darius, for yeah, letting me interrupt you, you uh, once again. <laughs> no, I love it, my friend. I love it. And uh, and Ash, one quick thing before we transition. I, I did want to make the key point um, and why investors should care about uh, these dollar yen, these cross-currency dynamics. 
is because the the policy divergence between the Bank of Japan uh, maintaining its yield curve control would effectively unlimited buying of JGBs on the long end of the curve creates this sort of massive spread between uh, uh, you know market implied interest rates uh, in Japan relative to our interest rates in the Treasury curve. And so as long as the BOJ is deemed to be uh, sort of maintaining that easy policy, it's an incentive for Japanese investors uh, to go out um, and, and speculate abroad, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but the problem with speculating in the Treasury market, as we continue to see, is this market continues to underestimate the Fed's resolve uh, with respect to tightening monetary policy and more importantly, the stickiness uh, of inflation. As those are two things I think, they think we should touch on today. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Well, Darius Dale, in many ways, that's the perfect transition uh, from the dollar yen story into the broader macro picture. Give us a little bit of context of what's on your radar and how you're thinking about these markets right now. Yeah, so it's it's a pretty quiet week. I mean, obviously we have a, we're in the quiet period from the perspective of uh, FOMC speakers. Uh, we got the meeting next Wednesday, uh, and so the kind of the key headline this week that's going to take the headline this week is a Friday's CPI report. Tomorrow we'll get the ECB. I don't want to rain on their parade, and we'll also get the Chinese credit data uh, for the month of May uh, tomorrow night as well. We can touch on those, but I think very clearly the number one thing that's going to rock markets this week uh, to the upside or downside is inflation. Uh, we'll get that print on Friday. I think consensus is expecting a tick down by uh, the 10 basis points or so in headline, a tick down by 20 to 30 basis points on core. Uh, but to me, I don't think the year over year rate of change, and we've been talking about this for nine months now, I don't think the year over year rate of change matters. What matters is the sequential momentum and in inflation, because that will be the clearest indication for the Fed and for financial market participants uh, of, of receiving what quote unquote clear and confirming evidence uh, that inflation is either getting back under control or continuing to misbehave. Um, I'll throw a few uh, few statistics and charts out there at you. So to me, I think the biggest risk uh, with respect to Friday's print is this potentiality that we get uh, an overtaking of, of, of core inflation momentum uh, by services inflation uh, relative to goods inflation. So Brian, if you throw up a couple of charts, the first chart just shows what if um, the title is what if disinflation uh, in core goods CPI dot, dot, dot. And what we're showing there is just the the uh, the, the sort of um, the the core CB the, the core goods inflation in the top panel. The middle panel shows that on a year-over-year rate of change basis. The bottom panel shows that on a, on a three-month annualized basis. And right now, we're seeing a significant slowdown in the three-month annualized rate of core goods CPI. It's at about 0.8 percent on a three-month annualized basis. That's all the way down from the year-over-year rate of 9.7 percent. So that's what's really driving. The disinflation we've seen in core inflation off the highs, the disinflation in, in core PC we've seen off the highs. But the issue is, and the next chart is dot, 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 is overpowered by accelerating core services prices. And the reason I bring this up is because we continue to see evidence of an incremental acceleration in services prices. What this chart is showing, top panels is core services, uh, on a, a core services prices year over year in the middle panel and the three-month annualized in the bottom panel. And if you notice the three-month annualized there, not only is accelerating, 
27.5-ish percent year, uh, on a three-month annualized basis. That's significantly faster than the year-over-year rate of 4.9%. So it's telling you we're continuing to build momentum to the upside in that time series. And oh, by the way, we still have things like energy prices climbing new highs, uh, agricultural yeah. prices grinding higher. And so to me, I think the key it, takeaway before we uh, pause yeah. is if we get inflation statistics misbehaving by this dynamic, we're going to see an incremental uh, step function higher in bond yields and policy rate expectations, et cetera. Darius, it's a striking chart. Uh, walk us through it, particularly for people who don't have uh, extensive macro backgrounds. What are we seeing there? What's the driver? What's the broader implications? Absolutely. So so the the, the top panel is just showing the, uh, the time series in a, in a non-stationary manner. So core uh, services inflation. So things like housing, rent, uh, utilities, et cetera. It's basically, you know, all the stuff we consume from a service set to medical consumption, most services generally tend to be core, uh, fall in the core basket um, in right. that regard. So this is this is you know the the larger lion's share of of inflation. I mean, it's it's basically sixty to set sixty five percent of the overall CPI basket. And so you know the right. fact that it's being overpowered by goods disinflation is anomalous, which tells you that if goods disinflation slows at any at, at any point in time in the next few months, what's more likely to happen is that this does in fact become the dominant driver of inflation as it traditionally is and it continues it'll likely keep inflation particularly core inflation operating at a more sticky kind of level for the summer months yeah the other thing that's striking to me about the lower two panels uh is what you know every serious macro person will tell you the same thing it's not just absolute levels rate of change matters Rate of change, rate of change, rate of change, man. It's the secret to the universe. It's the secret to financial markets. And so, you know, we, we you know, most most economic statistics for those of us, you know, who aren't walking economists, uh, they tend to get measured at least on a year-over-year rate of change basis. That tends to matter a lot to financial market participants and obviously market and policymakers as well. What I think has mattered most throughout this particular cycle, just given the sort of um, unusual nature of this pandemic recovery, we've seen some massive stimulus. We've seen the roll-off of massive stimulus. We've seen several fits and starts from a COVID perspective. And so what has put a lot of onus on tracking time series from a sequential momentum perspective, month over month, three month annualized, et cetera, uh, to get a sort of um, cleaner read on the data because there's been so much lumpiness in the year over year time series. And so when you look at things like core services inflation at 7.5%, three, three month annualized, median CPI, which is the median inflation rate of everything in the CPI basket at 6.2% annualized or sticky CPI, which is one of the statistics down the Fed calculates, they're probably as close to the inflation uh, measurement as, as any of the, the Federal Reserve uh, banks. That that 6.5% through month annualized, these numbers are all extremely inconsistent with the Fed getting core PCE back to its 2% target anytime soon. And so to me, I think the risk in financial markets, particularly from you know anything north of 4,000 on the S&P or anything north than you know, the three and a half on on maybe one year forward, um, you know, euro dollar spec, uh, euro dollar pricing, Fed fund futures pricing, et cetera. To me, is the risk is to the upside on rates and to the downside and risk asset market pricing. Yeah. So let's walk through that a little bit, try and explain it a little bit, particularly for people uh, who are not uh, macro focused. I'm curious about this. There's this sort of old phrase out there, uh, kind of a joke, kind of not a joke, that the cure for high prices is higher prices, uh, meaning that as prices begin to rise, there's a natural decrease in demand that happens. Uh, you start to see some contractionary risk uh, in terms of growth, in terms of productivity, in terms of a whole series of other variables. One of the stories on the wire today that's really interesting uh, is that mortgage demand right now has fallen to 20 22-year lows, a pretty striking number. Uh, again, to get back into the thesis, cure for high prices is 
uh, uh, higher prices. This idea that one of the things that you've been hearing everyone talking about uh, the last six to 12 months is how rents have been increasing uh, here in New York City. It's a constant topic. Uh, my landlord wants to increase my rent 15%, 20%, 25%. When I walk down the streets, uh, there's a building on the corner that's been vacant for the 16 years that I've lived here. They're now renovating and rehabbing those apartments. Why? Because it's become economically advantageous to do so. It's mm -hmm. such a seller's market right now. And then you see this print showing that there's a significant decline, a 22-year low, in fact, uh, in the rate of mortgage consumption. What's happening there, Darius? Help us understand it. Yeah, so the housing market, it, you're absolutely right. High prices is the cure for high prices. We've seen negative year-over-year -year, uh, mortgage demand for you know basically about six to nine months now. Um, yep. And that's likely to continue. I mean, you look at the last two prints we've gotten from a, out of the housing market from a home price appreciation standpoint, whether you look at the CoreLogic Case-Shiller numbers accelerating to an all-time high north of 20% year over year, the FIFA, which tends to measure housing uh, prices, uh, you know, kind of in the middle to lower uh, uh, incomes cohort, that's also accelerating to an all-time high. That was Q1 data a couple of weeks ago. And the issue with that as it relates to inflation, going back to this discussion between core goods and core services inflation, is you know, something like shelter inflation is about a third of the basket, you know, and owners equivalent right. rent, which is, you know, a, a function of shelter or one of the features of shelter inflation. That's about, you know, 75 percent of that particular you know component in, in the CPI basket. And so as long as we have home prices continue to accelerate, it's likely to have a tail in terms of perpetuating the acceleration we're observing in owners equivalent rent and by extension shelter inflation. I mean, we've done an analysis that shows the, the lead, the lag between sort of peaks and troughs in, in housing uh, price appreciation on a year-over-year -year rate of change basis tend to be about 12 to 18 months ahead of the peaks and troughs in year-over-year -year rate of change in, in owner's equivalent rent. So that's suggestive just based on this, these peaks. You know, we could be seeing an acceleration in, in, in shelter inflation, particularly through owner's equivalent rent, which is calculated on a much longer lag than, than observed home price changes for extended period or for over a year from now. And to me, I think that's a real big issue. If you, th you think about a Fed that's, you know, kind of hoping and praying that inflation is still kind of transitory. You know, that's where this whole concept of a September pause came out. of. And unfortunately, right. you know, Brainerd has walked that back, you know, pretty forcefully. Uh, I think they're going to do a lot more walking back uh, if these inflation statistics over the next couple of months don't do what I think the markets are really hoping that they do. Yeah, Darius, obviously, while we're talking about monetary policy, we have a global view here on Real Vision Daily Briefing. I know that you have a global view uh, at 42 Macro. Uh, obviously, tomorrow, one of the topics of conversation, ECB rate decision expected. Uh, what's your take on what's happening in the euro area? Yeah, so the, uh, the, the situation in Europe is, 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 is fascinating uh, because on one hand, it's pretty clear that Europe's engaged in a, in a cyclical slowdown. Uh, when you look at the furthest leading indicators, the ones that have the longest lead times, like the zoo index or the or the uh, the Centix index, you know these things tend to lead the PMIs over in Europe. You know these things are in recession mode. Um, you're even seeing some of the lagging hard data already start to to, to break down um, in Europe, and so it's pretty clear that Europe is having a much more sort of adverse uh, response to the, the geopolitical consternation. The inflation dynamics in Europe have obviously been even more off the charts than they have been in, in America. I've showed a chart a few times in this program where we show the inflation surprise indices for uh, US versus the Eurozone. And the Eurozone inflation surprise index is literally like several times higher than the US inflation surprise index. And you're obviously seeing European inflation accelerate to an all-time high. Uh, in the most recent month in the May data. And so there's very clearly a, a, a bigger issue. The inflation is a surprisingly a bigger issue in Europe 
than it is in America, which I think it's pretty hard for most American people to believe that, but it actually is true. And so that puts a lot of pressure on the ECB and they've acknowledged it and they're likely to do something uh, to really giddy up in terms of tightening monetary policy, tightening financial conditions to, you know, at the bare minimum, put a floor in the euro. So what's likely to happen tomorrow, they're likely to end their asset purchase program because they've guided to rate hikes uh, starting next month, starting in July. And so they got to get that done. Uh, in order to give them some 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 policy space to do that because they've sort of guided to not wanting to do both of those things at the same time it doesn't make any sense right why would you be doing qe and then rate hiking at the same time i think it's preposterous that they're ending qe a month before they start hiking rates but that's neither here nor there right the europe you know they have a different mandate relative to the fed in terms of keeping right. the whole european project together yeah a paradox in monetary policy i don't believe it <laughs> yeah, no. Well, another paradox. Uh, this is, you know, again, nerdy, uh, nerdy, uh, nerdy macro strategy joke. But, you know, what do you call like, How do you know you're in a globally synchronized downturn from a growth perspective? The ECB hikes interest rates, right? Like you go, got to go back to the summer of 2008 during the global financial crisis. John claude Trichet, our buddy, uh, hiked interest rates because, again, going back to those that, that time, inflation was a big issue. Back then, you had crude oil going up to $150 a barrel thereabouts on Brent. Uh, and then 2011, in the middle of their own sovereign debt crisis, <laughs> they hiked interest rates because, again, the inflation dynamics uh, really came home to roost. Uh, and so we think we're a very similar setup today. And, and one point I would finally make is you have pretty much every major central bank, with the exception of the Bank of Japan and the Bank of, and People's Bank of China, actively engaged in draining liquidity from financial markets. And obviously, the Fed's going to be the, uh, the, the you know, thousand pound gorilla in that in that matrix. This is very unlikely to be a, you know, this is going to be a bumpy ride. We've never really seen this kind of coordinated tightening before on a pro-cyclical basis. Usually monetary policy is being removed, liquidity is being removed when the economy is getting better. You go back to the last QT episode, you know, the vast majority of that QT occurred when the economy was accelerating to, you know, to a 10-year high in, in growth. Uh, from a you know the, you get it from a U.S. and global growth perspective, right now they're they're post-cyclically accelerating tightening into the teeth of a slowdown. And in my opinion, I'm not sure asset markets have fully priced that in. Yeah, boy, that's a really dark, cynical punchline about the ECB. Yeah, well, look, they put it on the tape. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Darius, let's talk, uh, like flip the script over here a little bit, 180 degrees. We're talking about this idea uh, that the cure for high prices is more high prices. Uh, is the cure for low prices more low prices? There's a story that I saw earlier today uh, that Kathy Wood over at ARC uh, has purchased 55,000 shares uh, of Tesla. Uh, obviously, this is uh, Tesla off about 50%. Uh, from November all-time highs. Uh, what's happening there? Is Kathy ahead of the curve uh, or is uh, she dangerously close to getting over her skis in a market that may continue to decline? Uh, I mean, it depends on your duration, right? Like, you know, I'm sure Tesla five years from now will be one of the biggest stocks. It'll be worth a couple trillion dollars, if not more than that. Um, and Kathy will have been right on that purchase if you give her the time, time horizon. If, yeah. however, you're someone who doesn't want to blow up your money in between now and let's call it your end, you know, when we are based on our analysis, we think the Fed's likely to remove somewhere on the orders of nine hundred fifteen billion dollars uh, drain from from excess liquidity um, in, between now and year end. Like, I'm not sure that buying Tesla is a good idea ahead of that. Um, there's a view in financial markets right now in terms of the debates I'm having with institutional investors that 
a significant amount of the tightening has been priced in. But historically speaking, that has not been the case. It's, it's very difficult to price in the mechanical dynamics of quantitative tightening, the mechanical dynamics of a, a dramatic increase in the reverse repo uh, facility, you know, the mechanical dynamics of, you know, Janet Yellen issuing a bunch of coupons in a market that is effectively, you know, extremely short duration. Like the, those things have to happen. And so it's our, and it's our view that, you know, those kinds of, you know, this Kathy Wood, I, I'll use her as a poster child for this brazen attitude uh, of in risk takers that are still, that still right. very much exists. Right. You know, a lot of investors made a lot of money from the lows of 2020 to the highs of 2021 and whatever asset class they were long or the highs of January 2022. Uh, if you think it from a U.S. equity perspective and a lot of those people think that it was their brilliance. A lot of them don't realize that it was just a Fed balance sheet expansion, the expansion of net liquidity. And oh, by the way, this massive thing called a globally synchronized recovery off a lockdown depression in April of 2020. Well, basically, all those factors are working in reverse. So it's unclear to me why investors haven't materially altered their asset allocation, which is something we can observe in the positioning data when you look at the flow of funds report. Yeah, indeed. And you make precisely the right point there, uh, which is the notion of the duration that you're looking across. Uh, obviously, these are incredibly volatile stocks. Uh, obviously, they are sensitive to interest rates. Uh, but Kathy Wood has been a visionary at discovering innovation, uh, depending upon the holding period, a really critical point. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Talking about Tesla, talking about high duration stocks, something that it's correlated to, of course, digital assets, cryptocurrency. I wanted to show a clip uh, from a conversation earlier today. Uh, Nico Bruguet and, uh, and Santiago Velez and I uh, on a show called Crypto Unwrapped. This is a weekly show that we're doing here at Real Vision uh, that we're streaming live every Wednesday, looking at what's happening uh, in digital asset markets across the board. Uh, a conversation today that we had about some new legislation potentially coming down the pike uh, from two senators, uh, Kristen Gillibrand uh, and Cynthia Lummis. Let's take a look at that clip right now. Huge regulations released yesterday, proposals in the Senate by uh, two senators, uh, Kristen Gillibrand from New York and Senator Loomis from Wyoming, longtime Bitcoin supporter. Uh, so th that's, that's a wide-ranging, comprehensive bill that se seeks to, I guess, address multiple um, Un, you know, un, regulatory uncertainties in, in various categories. Uh, we could go through a, a deep dive into the bill. Uh, it's it's a it's a massive uh, statement from the Senate. Uh, so we'll see whether or not it's going to get passed. Uh, there's uh, bipartisan support in it so far, uh, it, and it looks uh, uh, to follow right along the lines of the president's executive order that was released earlier this year to kind of get consensus in the various regulatory bodies on who's going to govern what and what the definitions are. Uh, so it's very encouraging. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. So obviously, regulatory risk has presented itself as a significant headwind in the space. Uh, if we can get some resolution, some clarity in that space, probably a tailwind. Darius, thoughts on this? Yeah, no, this is a sell the rumor, buy the news event uh, regulation in the digital asset space, in my opinion. You know, it's pretty clear to me that there is a there's, a, there's several things that are very clear to us in terms of our research. One, um, if you look at the output of our secular inflation model, it's pretty clear that the trend in inflation, uh, at least in the U.S., is, is sort of 
transpose itself about 40% higher, which implies that you're going to have, you know, 40% lower real interest rates on, on balance, assuming no real material change in the, in the policy regime. Um, so that's, that's one that means there needs to be an asset allocation pivot from a strategic asset allocation perspective out of this concept of 60, 40, and maybe into something that looks more like 60, 30, 10 or 60, 25, 15. And where that, that 10 and 15 is the things like commodities, real assets, et cetera. Um, and I do believe that there is an institutional sort of, uh, there's a, there's a dam of institutional capital waiting to be allocated to the digital asset space, you know, things like Bitcoin as a store of value, other tokens, et cetera. The problem with that dam is one, we continue to see a tremendous amount of volatility that makes some investors hesitant. But I think the bigger problem, particularly from an institutional investment perspective, is you don't know the rules to the road. Is it a security? Is it not a security? Right. What's this? How is this going to get regulated? What what happens in the event of default here or this, 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 you know, it's tether or whatever, these tokens, et cetera, go bust. Like all that stuff needs to get regulated in, in order to understand the, 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 the rules of the game and the path of the road. And I think if that is the case, you're going to see a tremendous amount of capital flow into the digital asset space, particularly in an era of, of really low negative uh, real interest rates. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. That makes perfect sense. Uh, and it, precisely the way that institutional investors think uh, about the types of uh, headwinds uh, in terms of an absence of regulatory clarity, this is something that institutional investors who need to come in at scale are always very concerned about. Totally, totally, totally. <clears throat> absolutely. By the way, I should say that clip you just saw is a slice of the in-depth analysis you'll get from Real Vision's newest show, Crypto Unwrapped. Uh, just like Real Vision Daily Briefing, it's a deep dive uh, into the major stories that are happening in the crypto space. We're running that live every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7.30 p.m. in Mumbai, and 10 p.m. in Hong Kong. A global market, a global show. Darius, we've got a lot of questions flowing in right now. Want to jump into them? Absolutely. Just hop into the kiddie pool. Let's do it. <laughs> okay, first question, simple one. Uh, Ed Burke wants to know what's the prediction for CPI on Friday? Uh, I think you're, you've, you're, no offense, Ed. I think you're asking the wrong question. It's about uh, whenever you're walking into a, an economic release of consequence, it's less about what happens and more about what the market is set up to do into right. the event. And so there's a couple things that I call out. Um, <clears throat> if you look at the market setup, the market structure. One, we're broadly, at least prior to today, we were broadly overbought on most indices. Um, you know, at least according to our probable range process. And then when you look at the sort of uh, crowding analysis that we do to sort of identify extremes and derivatives market to take advantage of, you know, the market setup continues to be quite negative with a pretty significant implied volatility discount, a pretty significant reduction in, in skew relative to the to the one year trend. And so this setup for the market is 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 basically priced for protect perfection. So if this thing sneezes in the wrong direction on Friday, that's all that matters. And so, you know, get, get, try to reorient your mindset away from playing pin the tail on the donkey and re reorient your, your, your focus budget, really, uh, to understanding the setup heading into these events. Yeah, I'm going to be sneezing on the wrong direction on Friday and probably all week because it's peak allergy season here Holy in New York cow, City. So. Pollen, huh? <clears throat> I should apologize for uh, sounding a little hoarse. I have uh, terrible allergies uh, this time of year. So uh, let's break in. This is a question from Jim Griffin, Real Vision website. Uh, doesn't inflation break when goods deflate and not when services deflate? Darius, you touched on this a little bit earlier. Uh, for people who don't uh, follow macro markets as closely as you do, give us a little bit of an explanation for what that means and why this distinction is so material. Yeah, no, so he's he's right. And uh, what he's identifying is the fact that uh, services inflation dynamics tend to be stickier. Um, you tend to get more variance 
in goods deflation. And by, by, by the function of that variance, it tends to be the dominant driver of the variance in CPI, but it's clearly not the dominant driver of the actual overall price level of the economy. And so my point is, is that clearly the variance in core goods inflation and goods inflation broadly, if you look at commodity prices, has been the dominant driver of, of why we have you know 8.3% <coughs> headline CPI at the current juncture. The point I'm making is that if that variance reduce, is reduced at any point in time over the next few months, the probability that the variance, the change in services prices takes over as the dominant driver is actually quite high and services prices continue to accelerate to the upside. And that is very counter to what I believe has become a very sort of, you know, I wouldn't say fully consensus, but pseudo consensus market narrative that inflation's peaked, it's going to be under control in a few months and the Fed's going to pause and you know, we'll be back to something that looks like QE by the end of next year, by the beginning of next year. And to me, I think the only path to getting, you know, something that looks like QE or what we call Federal Reserve Ambulance Sirens at 42 Macro is through is through the soup. You got to go. You got to have the pain to get the gain. You're not going to have your cake and eat it, too, unless, of course, for the first time in recorded history, inflation just magically <laughs> disinflates without a reduction in demand, without a reduction in profitability, et cetera. Darius, fill in a little bit of the context. Why is that the case uh, with goods inflation versus services inflation? Is it because uh, you have to basically spin up physical productive capacity factories coming on and offline and there's some lag uh, and lead times there? Yeah, absolutely. So it goes back to the supply chain, right? So you have inventories, you have shipping, you have, you know, sourcing, production, all these different things are, you know, sort of, you know, lead to, you know, variable costs, variable time of delivery, variable orders, you know, you, you know, the, the fact that is a physical good means that more hands need to touch it, more things, you know, needs to be shipped, it needs to be stored, and all those things have costs associated with them. Whereas services prices tend to sort of be set on a, on a contractual basis. Um, you know, maybe you know, not all services, obviously, you think about something like an airline ticket, uh, but generally speaking, you know, it, it's, it's a lot easier to sort of pass through services prices. And as a function of that, you tend to see sort of more sticky prices that tend to climb uh, in a less volatile way. Um, and this is why you tend to see if you look at something like core PCE, it tends to be dominated by uh, services prices. But that doesn't mean that, you know, that goods doesn't matter. Goods, you know, goods is the variable part of the economy. If you look at the inventory cycle, right? right We've been building inventories for the past three quarters. If you look at our average, you know, 82% of the headline GDP we've observed since the third quarter of last year has been inventory builds. And so this is something Target's talking about, Walmart's talking about, and having overordered inventories to a, to a goods consumption cycle that has effectively fallen off a cliff. I mean, if you look at it on a three-month annualized basis, uh, the real personal consumption expenditures on goods is 0.2%. It's ground to a halt. And this is exactly what Target is telling you um, when they constantly revise their their uh, earnings estimates lower. Yeah, here's one from William H. from the Real Vision website. This is a critical question. Uh, what do you think, Darius, uh, about Q2 earnings and particularly about Q3 guidance? Yeah, so, I mean, look, these companies have to, they, they've got to take down numbers. And, and whether or not they do that in Q2 or Q3, uh, I think is moot if you're taking the, the sort of medium term time horizon. Um, you know, one thing that's very incongruent with declining expectations for GDP growth, obviously declining trends across most economic statistics, you know, whether you look at leading indicators, um, you know, whether you look at even some of the lagging indicators are very much starting to show some real sizable deceleration, even like, you know, we're supposed to be in a services sector boom, right? But real consumption on services in the U.S. in the most recent print in April is only 1.8% on a three-month annualized basis. That is not a boom. That's a below trend growth rate. Um, so you're really starting to see some 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 decline uh, in the growth rates in the economy. And so to me, I think when you talk about the obvious spillover impact to corporate earnings, 
particularly from an all-time high in operating margins, you know, 40-year low in productivity, 40-year high in unit labor costs. To me, it's the last major shoe to drop in terms of consensus having to get with the program on, you know, the sort of the path forward this year. We're not going to get back to this, you know, panacea state of, you know, low interest rates and quantitative easing until we go through the soup that is a significant slowdown in growth. A, a reduction, significant reduction in corporate profitability estimates and a likely potential earnings recession, which I think is a very reasonably high probability. Yeah. Darius, a great conversation as always as we come to the end of this show. Final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our viewers with. Yeah, there's a, you know, actually I have a, a couple charts before I wrap up. Just I'll be very quick on them. The first yeah. chart, Brian, is uh, the first is bear markets are common. And I just want to you know make this point very clear. You know, don't freak out just because we're in a negative environment. I think you know, there's a general angst around what to do next, what to do next. Everyone's time horizon is shrunk, with the exception of Kathy Wood, who's who's, who's buying the dip and all her favorite names. Uh, I know, by the way, I know I promised to be short, but just one quick riddle. What do you call a stock that's down 90%? Don't know. It's a stock that was down 80% and got cut in half. And so I just want to remind everybody the percentage change math associated with these bear markets going back to the chart, Brian, you know, bear markets are common. You know, we've lived in an era. If you look at the bottom right of that chart where we're showing the S&P 500 drawdowns, we lived in an era where we haven't really had to suffer, you know, too many bear markets. The Fed's balance sheet was consistently expanding. We had very low interest rates for an extended period of time. We are no longer in that regime. We are now in a regime that resembles much of the past 100 years which is more volatility in economic statistics, more volatility in inflation statistics, more tighter policy from a monetary policy standpoint, the less globalization, et cetera, et cetera. There's just more friction. There's just more headwinds to you know, capital market appreciation. And so I just want to make, remind everyone, if you look at this 100 years of economic history and market history, these things are common. And one final point I'll leave you with is the next chart, which is 2000 uh, to 2002, FOMO. When you're in a bear market, so by the way, this is the this is a chart just studying all the bear market rallies uh, throughout the 2000 to 2002 bear market. Market was down three consecutive years in route to getting cut in half. The S&P 500, I think the Nasdaq was down 80%, peak to trough. You had, I want to say, roughly about 10 bear market rallies of consequence, of significance, mm. several of them 14, 15, 20% from that local low and in route to the market getting cut in half. So my point, the point I want to make is, you know, there's going to be several times throughout this process of the dramatic reduction in liquidity we're walking into and this potentially significant slowdown in growth that we're likely to observe in the next, call it three to four quarters. There's going to be plenty of times where you think the market's bottom and you want to chase the stocks higher, but just remind yourself, you know, don't get the FOMO because the FOMO is really how you get hurt. It's not the, it's not the initial drawdown. It's the, the drawdown from the FOMO because that's when you go all in. I love it. Critical points about the nature of bear markets and 100 years of history to back it up. Darius Dale, thank you so much for joining us on Real Vision Daily Briefing. Appreciate you, Ash. Appreciate everyone. Thank you. Catch, catch you next week. And thanks again for watching Real Vision Daily Briefing. Andreas Steno Larson will be back tomorrow with Tommy Thornton. Have a good afternoon, everyone. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.